0: You have to let the universe do its thing so if i say to myself okay how in the world could i have been there that one day of my life and i meet this woman and she has the same last name and my mom was raised by her aunt and her aunt's husband and their last name was soika
1: this photography podcast is brought to you by frames quarterly printed photography magazine Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olson, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today... folks. Today, we are talking with a storyteller. We're talking with somebody whose work has really hit something deep core in me and a great many other people. In other words, we're talking with Max Hirschfeld. Max was born in North Carolina in 1951. He grew up in Decatur, Alabama, moved to Washington. His work has been lauded by just about everyone. He's in the permanent collection of the city of Washington in the National Portrait Gallery. He's won silver and bronze awards from the of Photographs uh, in Paris. And yes, I mispronounced that. Sorry about that. Uh, he's been in Arts and American Photography, the New York Times Magazine, Time, Vanity Fair, a million other publications. He was, and I didn't know this until just a short while ago, part of a team commissioned to produce art for the New American Embassy in Niger. 40 portraits were produced um, as a transboundary artwork designed to generate curiosity about cultural diplomacy. But you probably know them because of a book, a book which I had the good fortune to review, a book called Sweet Noise, Sweet Noise, Love in Wartime, which came out just a short while ago. I do hope you've had a chance to read the review on the Frames Magazine website, because not only is this an excellent book, this is an important book. It is multi-layered, multi-textured. It's the kind of work that I think a lot of us aspire to. Max, how you doing? Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Scott. Uh, I'm doing great. It's finally good to meet you. albeit <laughs> by voice.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we should tell everybody that this podcast was scheduled a short while ago, uh, and then COVID hit. And, and not only did it hit the world, it hit both you and me. Uh, so there was a little bit of a delay. But here we are back at it. Max, I, I, everybody knows about this book or should know about the book, and, and we're going to get there. But you've done so much extraordinary work before Sweet Noise. I, I want to bring everybody sort of up to speed. So, okay, you, you know, according to your bio, you went off to George Washington University to study photography. Bring me up up to freshman, first day freshman year. Tell me about your first interest, how you knew photography was a thing you were going to chase.
0: Well, I think this is appropriate because I just flashed back to my first camera and it <laughs> probably, no one will, you know, generally people will say, you know, my, I inherited a camera from my grandfather or my dad bought me a camera. However, I have had a camera that I don't think I've ever heard the name of again, and it was a German camera called Edixa, E D I X A. Okay. And I had this in I had this in high school. I'm going to say junior senior year, um, and I also say that because I was the or I volunteered to be the photographer for the yearbook staff in high school. Now that doesn't mean I was the guy that shot everybody's headshot and portrait right. or group yeah, shots. Right. I was just yeah. the guy that could fill in the stuff around the edges. And I did that primarily because it was mostly a free period in my mind. <laughs> and when I think back to that, it was even more telling because at the time I didn't associate photography with a free period, but over time it tells me a lot about how I utilized that sort of unknown love that I had, that passion that grew slowly. So I went to school, in GW, I think you mentioned that, I was here from 69 to 73 when I graduated. And I'll be honest with you, the part of the power of those years was the protests against the Vietnamese War. And in the spring of 1970, it was – So such a powerful response that people had. And I was in the center of everything because George Washington is, as you may know, it's right in the heart of DC. It's right near the state department between the state department and the white house, let's say. So, and I was a, you know, a pretty naive kid from a smallish place in Alabama. And it, it was such an impressive, powerful event. As I mentioned that they shut the school down uh, just in the early May, and sent everybody home with a passing grade. And it was probably that time within the next year or so when I came back that I decided to study photography. Unfortunately, we only had a small department with one professor, but it, it, it did something for me. And I'm saying that only because by the end of school, I couldn't be a photography major, but I was an American studies major, which at the time was a very, very new field. But I could use photography to get a degree.
1: So were, so, you, were you doing photojournalism? Were you doing street shots? Or what kind yeah, of I images doing, were you taking then?
0: I was doing street shots. Okay. Um, and I was doing the assignment work, which was really, in the end, was not how I would have, characterized a photographic education by any means. And I say that because it stuck with me, and I went, I was fortunate enough to get a um, part-time job at the Smithsonian the National Portrait Gallery working in the lab. And the Smithsonian, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I don't know if they still have this in the government. But they used to have what are called 700-hour appointments. And in essence, it's a way to get staff up In temporary settings, in case like a museum needs a major show coming up, they need help. So I learned, moved right into a darkroom position then, and 700 hours at 40 hours a week might be, I don't know, four months or so. But you know, for me, it was ideal because I could bring, I could do 20 or 25 hours a week and the rest of the time on my own. And I continued doing my street photography, which ironically was just recently run as a two page spread in Washingtonian magazine some of my early work earlier work, and I'm presently working on a hopefully a large scale exhibition of the work along with a publication to go with it here in the city so it really was the beginning of my infatuation with street photography
1: okay and so You've got your degree, you, you've had this internship, or you've had this 700-hour appointment. There's a bit of a leap there to get to Vanity Fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, t- tell me about the early successes. Tell me about you know getting your work seen, first of all, um, and then recognized for the merit that it has.
0: I think that because of that lack of focus, and I don't mean to be flip about it, But graduating in 73 with a very, very soft degree meant that I was decent at photography. But no one said to me, you know, how are you going to make a living doing this? And so my dad even said, maybe you should think of opening a camera store. And of course, in his mind, that was, you know, something maybe solid. But I wasn't interested in that. And I was very naive, but I put a little portfolio together. And I, um, after time, I got a couple of gigs, but a year later, I was able to get a job at the National Zoo. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I have had no interest in animal photography, but it was a full-time job in photography. And it was, so from 1974, and it probably helped that I had a nascent portfolio, 1974 to 1978, Uh, I was staff photographer at the National Zoo. Now, it may sound impressive, but if you have the backstory, they had had a slot open there for a photographer for a couple of decades, (laughs) and they never filled it. Okay. So this tells you something maybe about how the government operates, Uh and the Smithsonian is part of that. But they moved in. A friend of a friend, my wife's friend's husband, said, you need to – come and apply for this job and I'm going to make sure you get it. So I moved, I had a full-time job and I'll be honest with you. It was fine. It was general photography at a place that is very easy to work. You know, a zoo is, is contained. And if I had been 50 or older at the time, it would have been a fantastic place to work out my years until I retired. But I was, you know, in my early to mid twenties. And so, and I wasn't happy And I think it's because I loved photography so much and I wasn't able to experience photography out in the world. And so ultimately, the uh, first chance I had to leave was when my older daughter was born in late 1978. I left the zoo and then I started freelancing. And uh, at the time, there was uh, enough work here, primarily with the two papers, with their weekend magazines, as well as Washingtonian magazine. And, you know, one thing led to another. And you may know this, Scott, but at least for me it was, I wasn't very good at saying no. Even though I didn't know how to shoot in a studio, I kind of said, okay, I'm going to figure this out. So when someone said, hey, can you do this? We need this brochure done or we need a catalog worked on. So I, I took a leap of faith. And I think it's, you know this, if, you're, if you've got photography in your soul, everything is, is new and fresh, even if you're not shooting things you're comfortable with.
1: You know, Max, there's so much here just already that that I want to unpack. Let's go back one step and, and then half a step. Go back to the zoo for a second. You know, one of the things that, that that's you know in your website and whenever anybody's um, writing about you, you know they say that you're a master, I'm quoting now, a master at spotting the decisive moments while revealing the warmth and humanity of his subjects. Well, I mean, change humanity for like you know tiger <laughs> t- tiger ability or something, but but spotting the decisive moment. It strikes me that working in a zoo, if you've got to take a picture of a tiger's face this week and next week and the week after you start developing a way to reimagine every single time you have that encounter, right?
0: I think that's a great assessment. And it never struck me because of the nature of the job at the zoo. Uh, It helped me learn to be a generalist. Yeah. Because if there was a PR thing happening at the zoo, I had to show up. If there was a transport when they started the construction of the big cat enclosure there. They moved the white tigers to Cincinnati. I was assigned to go along in the, in the truck.
1: That does does not sound pleasant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, again, uh, hindsight's so incredible. You know, if I really was, if I thought long and clear about that effort and that endeavor, I would have recorded it differently. However, I think you, you're you're really touching on something important, which is the whole world of observation and learning to trust your instincts. And there's a really good chance that that came about due to those years at the zoo. The thing was, though, I had, didn't have a lot of opportunity to work with people at the zoo. And I think that in the end, that's my real passion. So I... Was lucky enough and I hit the ground running. I, I actually proposed a couple of projects that were published in the Washington Star while I was still at the zoo. And I even wrote those pieces. But, you know, I decided I'm, I'm not, I wasn't crazy about writing because you know this too. I'm crazy about it now. But back then, it seemed so much easier to work with a camera all day, develop the film, and then move on. Whereas with writing, it was always like, "Well, I probably should just change this sentence, or I should probably do that," and I think you you know that better than I do. But I think that my real my real instincts were to work with people, so that when I got out, I marketed myself to magazines uh, locally, and that eventually I think helped to move me into more of a national profile, shooting from for people here from other. For other magazines, shooting in Washington, but it was always with an emphasis on portraiture or on people, in, you know, in a very um, documentary style.
1: You know, I, I have I did not use the word portraiture um, in the introduction, even though a lot of your work does tend that way, because I, I think that puts an idea in people's minds, which which is, um, you know. A little bit smaller than actually the work you're doing I mean you' you're, you're doing portraits of a very different kind and we'll get to that in just a second one other thing from your history that, that I want to ask about your your oldest daughter is born and you decide to go freelance then uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean did you did you have enough already in terms of reputation that that you were pretty confident or was that just a risk that, that I would be afraid of?
0: I think it was a a risk that I wasn't afraid of. It was a risk that being 25 years old, no, I'm sorry, 27, I don't think that I knew better. And I feel (laughs) like that may have been the crux of it in that, I'll give you a quick backstory. My supervisor there, who will go unnamed at the zoo, ended up being taken away from our offices in handcuffs. And yeah, the internal affairs at the Smithsonian had found him doing something not kosher. And we didn't get along great. So I think that I was more inclined to strike out on my own and let the cards fall where they may, as opposed to staying there. Now, I should preface that by saying that didn't occur while I was at the zoo, but it was couple years later, I found out about that, but it may tell you something about the nature of this individual that he may be more a reason that I did strike out on my own. Okay, um, And I think that, you know, looking back at the work and the reason I mentioned the Washingtonian recently and this early work I was doing in the mid to late seventies on the street. And then once I left, because I started doing that work while I was still at the portrait gallery in the mid seventies, but through, by the time I left, I look back at the work, and I think you'll understand this as well, it's very satisfying for me now to see that the way that I saw and thought then is the way that I see and think today, that I respond to what's being sort of the world is giving me, and I'm able to capture it, and I can see a very more finely tuned eye than at the time I might have been aware of.
1: Okay. Let's talk about one of your early series. Um, you, you have a series out there called One Shot, which everybody is really easy to find on the web. Just Google Max Hirschfeld and One Shot. And well, I, mean, I could describe what you're doing here, but why don't you t- tell me the idea of this series um, and what you were chasing?
0: Okay. I'm, I'm of a mind that when something shows up inside my head and it doesn't leave, that I need to give it room to grow. And so- One evening, I had this thought, and this is before I was shooting digital. So this goes back to very probably 2001, 2002, right in there. I had the idea that I would go set up a camera on the street with a pre-selected background. And there would be a very rigid structure so that the camera was as repeated distance to the wall. The camera was always 30, 33 uh, inches off the ground. It was always on a tripod. It was medium format. It was color negative film. It was the same lens. It was always the same, 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 same. And we would set up and basically sit on a street and wait. So I started doing that here in D.C. And not only to, to add insult to injury to myself, Not only did I have this rigid structure in mind, and I would ask people if they would pose for portrait, which would just be a literally one frame of film, I also had in the plans that it would be a roll, even though it's a roll of 10 exposures, that I would shoot nine, and the final product would be enlarged contact sheet. So, And enlarged at the time, you, even then, and the prints that I have from my first exhibition of this work are 40 by 50 and probably could go bigger. But what turned out to be the, the problem in there was there was no guarantee I was going to get nine portraits in a day. So I did this effort and then quickly understood that the same aesthetics could be put into place with dropping that idea of having to get nine before you could be satisfied. So long story short, it became something that I did in five cities. And at the time, I was already doing a a fair amount of corporate work and traveling a lot. But because I always travel with an assistant, the key was if if we were going to be working in San Diego, that I would stay over for a couple of days. But when people look at this, it should be understood also that not only – it was very important that there be foot traffic and a very interesting background that I had found and there be uh, maybe a particular type of individual that I w- would be interested in photographing.
1: Okay, now that, that, that brings up a couple of things that, that I want to make sure everybody listening um, is aware of. When you say, you know, backgrounds and stuff, we're not talking, you know, fabric pulled off a roller here. We're talking the sides of buildings and doorways and, and that kind of stuff. And right. th- these portraits, yes, they are all exactly framed the, the same way, but you are making really intentional choices between the texture of the backgrounds, the colors of the backgrounds, and then the subjects um, that you have put in there. Now, are these all people that have simply strolled by while you're set up in front of this, whatever whatever context you're providing?
0: Yes, that is exactly right. And as I mentioned earlier, the pre predetermined backgrounds are really important to the whole concept because- right. A lot of them are what they used to use, I believe, in the 30s, 40s, even into the 50s, of these kind of uh, tile walls, I call them, or structures that had patterned walls. And uh, so nothing that was the the, the side, it would be like the side of a building, but it would be a blank side with pattern to it. And maybe some of them are doorways. We set up once in Venice Beach. And there really wasn't what I was looking for. A couple other times there were murals or posters, but it had to be that combination of an interesting background to me. And I would scout the first day or maybe earlier in the week when I was in a place, let's call let's say San Diego or Philadelphia. And I would find spots and I would realize that the way, the only way you're going to achieve this is by either being out there between, you know, early morning or the lunch time frame, or certainly the best was always in later afternoon. So that combination of things. And if you look carefully through those, there's only probably 20 on the site. You and I know this, and I think people realize this. To have a particular individual in a particular outfit on in front of a particular background is beyond the ability for someone to plan that. So that I believe the beauty of the project was that the happenstance is really where the power is. And so ultimately, but like with many things, I think I ended up with 315 frames. Maybe 10% are sort of my, my children, as I call them. And when you see these blown up large, they do take on almost the, the presence of you know, full-size individuals. Um, But ultimately it's something that it it worked itself through and I just one day that was it.
1: Well, it, it is a mesmerizing project because, I mean, you can look at it as, you know, anthropology. You can look at it as ethnography, but it's also color studies. I mean, you know, a number of these images, you can really argue, have much more to do with color and texture than anything to do with the human being standing there. And the neat thing is it's all, all of it all at the same time. I mean, it is both the humanity and the, the visual stuff.
0: Thank and, and you. One, one quick note on that. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you. One okay. quick note is that we – all of them were lit with a ring light in a powerful – I use Profoto lights. So it was a powerful battery pack that we travel with. Okay. And so with that in mind, a ring light you know, has the amazing ability to sort of fill in the shadows so that it's, a, it's kind of a, a little finessing where you don't want to overwhelm the background, with that light or the subject but the difference in no ring light and then and i think this contributes to that color discussion we're having in that it really it it pumps up that color in a fascinating way so i basically if the exposure for the ambient light was um let's say was f8 or f11 and then we would dial in the ring light to come in at five six so it was always a stop or two under but it was a Exactly what it needed. So if it was, if you put your ring light at the same exposure, I think you'd end up seeing mostly, for me at least, would be the effect of the ring light rather than that. Had kind a of subtle blending of the colors that you're referring to.
1: Man, someday we we need to do a whole series just on light stories uh, and, and how people ha- and, and especially when you're outside, you know how you've you've managed light. Because I'm looking at these images right now, and you've got, I mean, obviously these are late afternoon or very early evening or very early morning shots because you've got some good strong shadows on the ground that are not overpowered at all. Um, right. But and, imagine those as full shot you know, fully black shadows. So even the the ring light does
0: help those shadows open yeah.
1: up. Boy, I mean, God was on your side when he sent you some of these people to walk by your your, uh, your outfit. I'm looking at the Pies, Donuts, Cakes, and Cookies shot. The woman that walks by with that red jacket. Uh, Venice, cool. be- Venice Beach has to be the guy in the Speedo. Uh, Venice
0: Beach is the Speedo. The, the yeah. Pies Donuts the, is in downtown
1: LA on Broadway. Um, the red shirt mm-hmm. with the Coke bottle? Where was that? Yellow wall behind him. Uh, that is uh, Baltimore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um
1: Wait, are, are there any from fargo max did you get any from my hometown
0: god i wish i had you know Scott, i wish we had talked before that
1: um, okay
0: you'll love oh. this too because over the years in this style i had a, my first exhibition of the work in oh five i think or oh six and to this day i still have people sending me they'll be somewhere and they'll say you know i thought of you because i just saw this one shot and um it, it's something that uh you know, sad to say it. I hope people don't ha- no inference whatsoever to problems we have today with um, with weapons in the world. But I think that uh, hopefully it's still understood that it, it's a it's about taking one individual frame. And one of the reviews I had at the time, the guy was suspicious that I had really only shot one frame of film. So you know, it's very easy to to prove him wrong, but. I don't know, Scott. It was a pretty rigid set of rules. Yeah, so look, I, man, you, you
1: you nailed it. Now, <laughs> of course, you know, the the next series after that, again, which everybody can find on the web, uh, looking at looking, which seems to combine some of your street ideas with some of your you know portrait ideas with portraits, uh, you know, not of yours. This is really interesting stuff, and you wouldn't think that a bunch of people standing around in a museum would be interesting, and yet you've made it. Really, really, a wonderful act of, of curiosity and revealing. Where did this one come from, and how did you get permission to do this?
0: Well, interestingly, the project started because I had an assignment from a Swiss foundation okay. to spend. And you know, this is a more happenstance, but you can imagine what it's like. A referral from somebody says, "Would you be willing to go wander around the?" National Gallery for a couple of days and take pictures because we've been it's a huge foundation that funded a research chair there so I was going gee that doesn't sound so bad Now also at the time which is in around 06 or so 07 I needed to make the, the move into digital and so it fell into place there because I, I let this foundation rent some digital equipment for me and I went to I went to town with it. And I say this because Washington, we're fortunate here to have a National Gallery of Art, and it's free. You just walk in. And it also, since it's there's no restrictions except for using a tripod or a flash, there's no restrictions on taking pictures there. So because I was given this project that I knew already that it needed to show people using the museum, not just the artwork or the research that was being done by whoever had been funded. And I fell in love with the idea and it was easy to have since it's right in sort of in my backyard that I could go back there repeatedly. So for two or three years, I kept doing it, not, you know, every, I'd say once a month maybe. And I didn't like shooting in the winter because I didn't want to see people carrying their coats. And so there were some restrictions I put on myself. Subsequently, some of the images in the project because I still do this, I still, I can't help myself. So when I go to other cities and I love going to museums as many, I'm sure if you listeners and yourself do that, I, I instinctually go so I can shoot pictures of people looking at art. Now I'm not the first person to do this. You know, I think Elliot Erwitt has a fantastic series of this work and I've seen other things and every once in a while, but there's instances in there that are again are just how could someone said to me, well, do you you talk to the people in the photographs? I said, that would destroy the whole nature of this little kernel of an idea. One of the photos, I believe, I hope it's in there. It's a a man in a cassock with his hand up behind his head from the rear. Is that in that series? I don't have it in front of me. It's a vertical image.
1: It's, it's not in the selection. Oh yes, it is. Yes, there he is. Yep. Okay.
0: So he's a, a, perhaps a monk or he's from Europe somewhere, but you started this conversation by talking about being a storyteller, and I guess that's what a lot of us do in photography, and that's why I still love the still image so much because it is a storytelling device. So I have a whole life concocted for this guy that he's got his hand on the back of his head. He's looking down. I'm, I imagine he's sort of saying, "What have I done?" You know, because he's <laughs> a painting of some very religious scene in the background. Yep. It's funny, The just the other day I was looking at a post from, uh, you, and you must know who um, Peter Turnley is. He lives in Paris. He's a photographer. He and his bro- twin brother, both terrific photographers. So, And he was posting a photo in Paris of someone from the back, and it was a waiter at the cafe that he goes to every morning. And he was talking about how he rarely shoots people from the back for whatever reason. Now, Interestingly, what I learned from this project was when you do photograph people from the back, th- since they're not aware of you and they're doing something like looking at a painting in a museum or they're talking to someone else, their body language is going to be about as natural as possible. Versus, I would say th- that, that,
1: that's what I was going to ask you because most of these shots are from the back, so you don't see facial expressions but you're also doing some funky things with lens choice here. You've got some, you know, straight on, you know, whatever, you know, 50, 35, whatever, but you've got some wide angle things going on here. Um, yeah. It
0: really messes you up a little with the floor. I bet in some of those images
1: in a because, really wonderful way. So I mean, what is interesting about seeing people from the back looking at art?
0: I think that there's this, my sense of their being, they're being fully engaged with, what the art is saying to them. And, you know, ironically, I have a number of images from this project of people being photographed in front of art. And it's something that it's almost becomes, you know, it's like in the age of the selfie, it's more important to show people that you were there. Whether or not, you you never talk about, oh my God, I, I got to see the Mona Lisa, or I got to see you know, the Sistine Chapel. It's more about just telling people I was there rather than whatever it did. So I believe that the the view from the rear, view from the back, is so telling that I, I'm infatuated with that. And it, it, believe me, Scott, it's, it's tied in with that need to, to satisfy my curiosity by making up the story.
1: Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might wanna have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. You know, in, in music, they talk about the implied note. You know, everybody knows a melody, so, so so a jazz musician will, you know, come up to a note that everybody knows and then go someplace else. And you hear both. I mean, it, it, when you're listening, yes. you know, you hear the one that you were expecting and you hear the one that was played. And so it's like a half vis- or half audible, half inaudible chord that you hear. And I think... You know, the same thing is true with the narrative and still photography. We see the image that's there, but we're also experiencing a narrative that's sometimes a projection of our own, but sometimes not. Because you are making, I mean, unlike the earlier series where you were precisely the same distance from everyone, you are making some very different story constructs out of how far away you are from some of these people. I'm looking at an image of somebody clearly across a spacious gallery, looking at a black and white abstract piece. I don't know. And yet then you've got some people that are blurred. You've got the distortion of a wide angle. I mean, you've, you've become the interpreter of the story that I'm trying to create. Is that a fair and assessment?
0: That really is. And then you, you probably see the picture of a young boy looking at the dinosaur sculpture with the, huge painting in the background that's in the west the, the east wing of the national gallery you know that picture is an example to me is a story about that young boy's true curiosity that it it seems so real to me that he's assessing this martin Purrier sculpture of a dinosaur that for a lot of people is such an abstract piece that it's hard to necessarily say oh it's a dinosaur and it so it ties in to me the whole aspect of youth and searching and learning on your own and he's isolated in this vast space. Um, so I th- I think that there are maybe it was my need to also or the joy I felt put it this way. All the years up until that series of, the, of looking at looking, uh, I slowly went from my early part of my career of shooting 35 millimeter, and because of the demands of uh, publications and clients. I moved through medium format, and I ended up shooting a lot of four by five, even occasionally eight by ten, and learning how to light things and so forth. So I think that when I had the freedom of going digital, I was able to go back to my roots in college and then my first few years of just shooting thirty-five, and so ultimately, it. I think that that contributed. To that amazing flexibility of having either really good zoom lenses, which are already in place when digital first started, or having a few lenses in your bag and being able, or two bodies, all those things that I think make 35 millimeter such a joy to work with.
1: Oh man, you know, Max, I, I would love to spend a week talking about every single one of these series. And you know, there's another one coming up, you know, or that you know after this one called Illuminaries, in which you went you you know, chased the art community there. And I gotta I gotta fast forward a little bit though, because I want to talk about the book. I I, I mean, Illuminaries is, is a magnificent project. The portraits you know, and and again, you see some interesting combinations there. Again, you've got pretty much standard distance between you and the subject, but now they're acting out in different ways, you know, or, or they're expressing a different kind of sensibility than the street stuff. You did something profound with Sweet Noise. This is a book, as I said in the review, you know, I started reading it. I got up and I closed the door, um, simply because I wanted the outside world to go away. I wanted to be absolutely immersed uh, in this book. This is a personal project for you. This is, it, as I said uh, in the review, there, there's actually three stories uh, in this book, your parents, your own, and then the images. And the writing, I, I you know, despite what you said earlier, the writing is phenomenal. But for people that haven't read the review, that don't know about the book yet, t- tell us where this project came from.
0: Well, Servai I understand, um, my parents both survived Auschwitz. And the fact that they survived, part of that backstory is that my father had met my mother in a ghetto in 1943, um, a Jewish ghetto in Poland, and fall, fell in love with her. He was already married and had a daughter, and she was 11 years his junior. But rather than discussing Auschwitz, because I don't think any of us can really discuss Auschwitz, they both survived, and they found each other after the war. And the reason they found each other is that my father was in Paris, my mother was in Brussels, and she put an ad in a newspaper, a little pamphlet that floated through the survivor community in these two cities, and looking for the whereabouts of uh, Julian Hirschfeld. So the finding of each other is is really kind of the beginning of this, of this story. So, so the reader needs to understand as well, they found each other, they got married in September of 1946, and then they were separated again because my mother had already gotten her visa to come to the United States, but my father did not have his visa yet. So he let her leave in late September of '46 from Brussels, and he ended up staying in Paris for almost four years before his visa came through. So... During that period, they wrote each other letters almost every day. So the book only has about 80 of what is probably seven or 800 letters. And for you and I and people who are listening, um, it's not just a one page letter that we're talking about. Some of these are eight and 10 pages and they're very dense and they're very full of emotion. But it would have been an impossible task to translate every letter and it would have been unimportant because. I decided early on that it had to be narrowed down to two things. How did they maintain this love? And also, how did they get through the chaos of the immigration system and finally get my father here in, in 49? And to go back quickly, in 1993, I escorted my mother to Poland. It was her first return in 46 years. So I knew I had a gift she was giving me uh, of being with her on this journey. And I photographed the journey. It's all black and white photography. There's actually one color photo in the book, but it's all black and white images. And when we got back all through the early to late nineties, I grappled with this because it's a beautiful set of photographs. Besides being very personal, it's very classic black and white documentary photography, but time and time again, I was told it was unbelievable. It was remarkable. It was very powerful, but it wasn't a book. So once I discovered these letters, I realized I had a book and that was in the early 2000s. For many of us, it might be similar. My mother, before she passed, a couple of years before she passed, she gave me a box and said, you know, put this away. You know, it's got stuff in it. And so of course I ignored the box, but then Years after she died, I opened the box, and that's when I discovered these letters, and it was a daunting task. I had to have them, uh, went through a series of translators before I finally found someone. So uh, put that all together, I had a. I knew I had a book. So, But the book didn't come out until 2019. And if we go full circle to the project in Niger that I did in 2018, it corresponded at the end of that project with... Uh, Paris Photo, which was the weekend, end of the week I was in Niger. And to get to Niger, you, you have to go through, mostly have to go through Paris. So I said, I'm going to go to Paris Photo. And I had a little maquette of a book already. And I said, I'm going to meet a publisher. And, you know, fast forward uh, t- two weeks after I got back, I had an offer of a contract from um. Domiani.
1: But, but tell me about, I mean, the, the memoir begins 10 years after your mother died, and, and, you know, you're hoping to retrace your father's steps, and, and then you meet th- this woman. I mean, did you know what was going on at the time when you when you met this woman at a cafe? You know, was the back of your head saying, okay, you know, here's the key to the door I've been trying to unlock?
0: Well, if you remember in the text, I, I don't think it was that boom, like smack okay. your head, forehead, because... I knew that I wanted to retrace these steps because I would never be in Brussels again. And I fooled myself thinking that I could walk this route that he would walk because when he, when my parents first got together, he was still living in Paris and she was in Brussels and he would come to Brussels when he could. And, and I hadn't addressed for where she was staying. So I found the building and then I decided to go nearby kind of a bustling part of Brussels and then sitting at this cafe just to catch my breath and kind of figure, this answers your question. Did I have like that aha moment? And I didn't, I, it was the opposite. I was a little saddened by this idea. I said, what am I doing here? Just because that's the building she lived in that really wouldn't teach me much. But at the, in this cafe where there are just a couple other people, the outdoor space I did hear Polish. And so I heard this woman and she was this elegant woman, her pictures in the book and she was with an aide. So I approached her and and talked in my pigeon French and I ended up getting her name and a photograph. She was very reticent to let me photograph her. (laughs) So she wrote the name down. I said, thank you. And I, I headed back to the tram to get back to central Brussels. And I, realized that her last name was the same last name as the family that raised my mother in Poland. So I was dumb dumbfounded. I was really kind of gobsmacked, I think is the right word. And so I ran back to find her and she was gone. So the importance of this is that, and I have a good friend who has told me this many, many times, and it happened with getting the book published, is that you have to let the universe do its thing. So if I say to myself, okay, how in the world could I have been there that one day of my life, and I meet this woman, and she has the same last name, and my mom was raised by her aunt and her aunt's husband, and their last name was Soika, S-O-Y-K-A, and that's the name of this woman, and she was a survivor living in Brussels. So you know, it's a little bit of one of those things that makes the pears stand up on the back of your neck. And for me, it was a, not only a self-contained story that had deep emotion, but it was a really good chunk of this book that had been floating around in my system for a while.
1: Max, talk to me a little bit about context and, and and let me explain what i mean here i mean your your early series you know you talked about you know intentionally picking a background uh, and waiting for people to walk by but here you've got initially the, the this set of images that you took when you were on a trip with your mom then comes along the you know your understanding of these letters then you know 10 years passes and now you're looking at these letters and these images again Most of us would simply put together a photo book of the images and say, I'm done. How did you approach just conceptualizing this book with so many disparate parts that actually need to be together? I mean, for example, you know, I'm looking at the photograph uh, of your mom by the train tracks at Birkenau. I can imagine taking that picture. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to look at that picture 10 years later, having read all the letters. Mm. Um. So, I mean, how, do, how does your role as the artist, as the archivist, as the curator of this story change as new information comes in?
0: That's a great question. Scott, you should do this for a living. This is really good. <laughs> <laughs> Um,
1: yeah, that and play the saxophone. No, that's not, not going to happen.
0: Yeah, well, I, I want to hear that after we're done. <laughs>
1: okay, I don't play the saxophone. That's why I said that.
0: <laughs> oh, but, you know, you did make a jazz reference earlier about yeah. those, those notes. So there's some there's some music. And, of course, we all know photography and, and music are deeply entwined. Uh, you know, I think that I I tried. Scott, i got to tell you, I have a stack of rejection letters from those early days of trying to do a book, I had we all do. <laughs> yep, I had an agent for a while who thought this was incredible. He was with a big literary agency in New York and he thought this should be for young a young audience, a YA audience they call it. And so, you know, because I was so I was so naive about the idea, however I knew I wanted to do this book because I thought that there was a story there and So I went that direction and I started studying more and more about Auschwitz and the war. And I realized if I'm going to do a book ever, I should know a little bit about what I'm talking about. And so I went through that period, got nowhere. Then I ended up uh, another gentleman fell in love with it and he was a book packager. And he he convinced me that all we had to do was put together a traditional photo book with my text This is really before the letters really were important in here. And um, that we would send it to a a publisher, would love it and send us a big check and say, come back in six months. And you and I both know, that's not how the photo book world. But I was excited. I said, this is great. This guy loves my book. He's got a lot of experience. So, but all through this process, I was, I hadn't seen the full extent of what was in the letters. So when I finally found a translator here in DC that I could work with. It was still a daunting task, but as they came more and more available, I knew that I had the makings of something that was a disparate body of work, as you mentioned, but that there was a timeline here that would help bring it together. And so the timeline, though the book starts with that trip to Brussels because I was actually on a corporate assignment it starts with that little chunk which really is the end of the story not the beginning a friend um, who's a curator here he's now at the National Gallery of Photography he said you know you need to flip the narrative in this book you need to put this last story in the front and then just go into and all of a sudden it made sense so the reason I say there's a the linear aspect of this is, is quite important in that if you keep that as a self-contained four or five pages and the portrait of this woman, the nature of the beast then is that it started in 1943 when they met. The letters take you from 46 when they started getting written. And the storyline in the letters is the only way the story of their lives during the war, before the war and during the war could have been told. And no one can refute that those are, that that is not the truth. You know, aside from the fact that they're accurate, because, you know, who am I to say they're not? That is the best way to tell that story is through the, the, the words and voice of the people that lived it. So you go from this time frame of the early forties into 49, when my dad is um, finally gets to the States, I'm born in 51. And then I had a chance to deliver my part of the story about growing up with the, you know, with two survivors. And then uh, my mother, during those years, talking about going back to Poland before she died. So it was a perfect entree to move into the trip. And part of the, the problem all those years with not getting the book done was that people said, this is like a travel essay. It's not a book. And so fast forward to, again, and I, you know, my publisher was, had asked me about having essays, who was going to write the essays. And I, you know, when I knew I had a contract, I had never thought about essays. But, you know, I was fortunate to get two very prominent people to write essays for the book. And it just, I think it helps fill it out even, even more
1: it does. I mean Max what what you've got here is, is you know what we call a braided narrative. You you have the 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 poignant story in your parents' voices with their letters, you have your story, you have the images and and then you you have more the perspective that you bring, you know, as an adult narrating not only, you know, your childhood but your parents uh, coming together. All three strands really do braid together to make something. Uh, I'm going to use the term again: profound. The, the the images, of course, are you know world class images. I think what will surprise people is is how poignant the images become, having read the letters, having read then your story. I mean,
0: now it's interesting. Sorry to interrupt you too, but just real quick, several of my early attempts at the book. Were photograph text on the other side, or text then photograph, and I knew that they needed to be absorbed with that in mind, but not so literal. And so I had been working with David Skulkin, who is the designer of the book and has become a good friend. We had been working together since the time of that ill-fated book packager who decided we would get, you know, some big contract from a publisher, and so I. I gave David his head and let him simply saying what's really important is that there still be that relationship between after having read the letters where there's almost no photographs to the point when you start reading the text and then the photos begin to flow in, but not necessarily exactly page photo, page photo, et cetera, that there's enough of a random flow and a a scale flow that I think, Keeps the reader a little bit more excited.
1: Cool. Well, I mean, we're going to run out of time here really quick. But okay. g- g- give me the elevator speech about images for humanity, because there there, there is one other project that you're working on you know, right now, which is important and timely, and and people need to pay attention to this. So t- tell me about images for humanity.
0: Okay. Um. In um, late January. Maybe right after the invasion, my friend Andy Anderson, who's a tremendous photographer, lives in Mountain Home, Idaho. But one of the great advertising photographers working today, he contacted me. He said, "You know, I'm drinking a really shitty bottle of wine here, so I started (laughs) feeling, and I was feeling terrible about what's going on." And he said, "What? You know, we need to do something." So that's how it hatched. Um, He and I chatted a little bit. He through his network. Tell people what it is. Okay, Images of Human- for Humanity is an online platform that is a designated uh, resource where 130 photographers have are offering images, one image per photographer. And for a $250 donation, people can get a print. And they're limited to uh, 10 copies of each print. And what's important about this, too, is aside from the effort, where all the proceeds, the hundred percent of the profits are being uh, sent to the Ukrainian Red Cross, the the ability to own images by m- a number of marquee names, you know, and I can say uh, without hesitation, we, there's a Herb Ritz image, there's a Albert Watson image, there's a Mark Seliger image, there's a Max Hirschfeld image, and so forth and so on. That there's a huge amount of of images that are available to people. And so the website is designed by a crack creative team that Andy brought on. And then we had four picture editors involved as curators. So fast forward to the launch on May 17th, and it's only been up. It's been up now for about six weeks. We're hoping it'll run through the summer, but it's a really, really valuable tool you and I know this. Most people know, you know, it's easy. If you feel bad about what's happened and happening there, you can send a check somewhere, but here's an opportunity to send a check in and get a beautiful photograph and feel like you're contributing to something important. Uh, Final piece of that is we just sent our first $25,000 check to the Ukrainian red cross uh, last week with more in the works. So it's a, it's been a value you know, and it's a, it's a, substantial tool now, organization, nonprofit, so that, and we call it Images for Humanity so that it can actually, God forbid, something like this happens again, but we can sort of fluidly move into another crisis. And using photography again and again, which of course is impactful beyond our being able to describe it uh, as a really important little machine. So everybody that's going to be listening to this, it obviously is in love with photography already.
1: Well, man, I mean, I'm looking at these images right now and any one of them is, is worth what you're asking, um, if not 10 times that, and to, to buy one of these extraordinary prints and to have that money go uh, to um, war relief efforts in the Red Cross in Ukraine is a noble, noble thing to do. It's
0: something that none of us quite, I think we bit off a big chunk of something here, um, but it's been fascinating. There's a team of 12, 13 people, and we have, paper was donated by Legion, and um, we're using a printer in Missoula, Montana. I'm um, going to give her a plug. Yeah, it's called Paper and Ink Studio, and it's just, it's a remarkable operation, and Marcy, who owns it, has been has done other print drives. So, and you can imagine none of us on the team really quite knew what that meant, but, you know, the whole fulfillment aspect of building a, building a website and then shipping these things and not just into the States, you know, there've been a number of prints sold that have gone to England and to other parts of Europe and Australia. So I think that it's, a, it's a, like you said, a very noble effort, but one that we were probably a little naive going in and we've learned... heck of a lot so i hope everybody can just at least i think there's an inspirational nature to a number of those images also so
1: yes and and, you know you've mentioned being naive a couple of times i'm I'm beginning to think that is a blessing because if we knew better we wouldn't do a bunch of stuff but if we're we're a little naive well why the hell not let's let's do it (laughs)
0: I love that, you know, and that's another jazz reference, Scott.
1: Yeah. If you yeah, think yeah. about,
0: you know, you you know you're a jazz master, and you may not know it, but in in the end, whenever you read uh, interviews with with jazz musicians, they talk about not knowing where they're going with the next note. But sometimes it just goes there, and they let themselves be sort of a vessel, which is true of what you're saying about this.
1: Okay. Well, a new project then for both of us, jazz and photography. Max, this has been extraordinary. This has been special. Thank you very much.
0: I really appreciate it. And it's an honor to be with you today.
1: Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.